everybody loves to grow tomatoes. Everybody has problems at one point or another. What are some common tomato maladies that you might be bothered with this year? Let's talk to the king of the, the tomato in Yolo County. By the way, Yolo County, the home of tomato processing in California. The tomato king would be Don Shore, owner of Redwood Barn Nursery in Davis, California, and Don, I, I think after uh, people plant their tomatoes, especially if they planted them too early and there's still some cold or wet weather involved, there may be uh, some issues with flowers and fruiting to start off. There are often problems early in the season as the plant goes into soil that's cold. We talk about this frequently when we're on, you know, together on your program about waiting for those nights to warm up, waiting for the soil to warm up, and the plant will just languish. It will show all kinds of apparent nutrient deficiencies that are actually root damage from going into cold soil. Good news is they'll usually outgrow those problems. And if you did a little side dressing or applied a very small amount of fertilizer at the time of planting, it'll be fine. I wouldn't worry too much about that. The next thing that happens is we get rain uh, invariably at some amount in, in March, of course, April, and even into May. And th that rain doesn't do a whole lot in terms of watering the plants, but it does get the leaves wet. And it's not uncommon for us to start seeing some leaf diseases on the young tomato plants, uh, two or three major ones that were, are, are common in our area. The good news is we're in an area that's dry. We're in an arid western states. I realize your podcast, of course, has an international audience. So we deal out here mostly with a little bit of early blight, sometimes some bacteria, leaf speck, and sometimes some late blight. And in the case of the first two, pick off those leaves, the weather warms up, it gets dry. That's the end of the problem. You don't have to worry about it. It just goes away. Late blight is less common, but we do run into it, and sometimes gets further into the leaf, into the petiole, into the stem, and can kill a whole part of the plant. So that's obviously worse, and that can become, you know, even potentially life-threatening to the plant if we continue to have unusual late-season rains, as we did, for example, in May 2019, when it rained and rained and rained all the way through the month. You need to cut that out pretty quickly when you see it and get rid of it. Listeners east of the Mississippi need to go to their garden center and buy a fungicide. We don't need to do that here. We know that at some point, I can promise this, it'll be warm and the humidity will be low and the problem will solve itself. But if you do happen to see some rapid dieback occurring, you need to prune that out. Okay, I have a question about uh, flowers that fall off. Sometimes nurseries will sell you a product designed to keep the flowers on the plant. Is that worth the money? No, says the nurseryman. No, it's not worth the money. <laughs> There'll be plenty of time for the flowers to set and give you plenty Explain. of fruit. If you're listening in Corvallis, Oregon, Seattle, Washington, Fort Bragg, California, those products may be the only way you get tomatoes to set. And so, yes, they would be appropriate for you in that climate. Uh, they are, they're an interesting spray. It's a hormone spray that induces fruit set without pollination. Interestingly, you get basically seedless tomatoes when you do that. And in really cool climates that are just not totally suitable for tomatoes, they may be appropriate here we'll get to the point where the blossoms will set fruit. I, I can guarantee it. You know, tomatoes, as you mentioned, were number one in, in Yellow County. Well, they're now number two. They've fallen behind almonds about a year ago. But this is tomato country here in the Sacramento Valley. There's no need to do special sprays or anything like that to get fruit set because the weather conditions will, although they seem volatile, up and down and cold nights and hot days and all that kind of thing, we'll get the temperature range that's appropriate for the self-pollination of the flowers and the fruit set. So I don't think those sprays are necessary. 
All right, let's talk about some uh, early season pests of tomato plants. And uh, what I've seen on my own, and I'm sure that others may see it, are white flies and aphids. Yeah, and they're, uh, they're sucking on the leaves and obviously stressing the plant. White flies can really become a problem, especially late in the season. You know, as you get towards the end of the summer, the population can really build up. They don't harm the fruit. They don't harm the blossom. So they're just weakening the plant somewhat by sucking on the, the you know, sucking the juices from the leaves. Um, in our nursery, we manage them just by vigorously rinsing them off. Just a very strong blast of water, focusing on the undersides of the leaves and being consistent about it, doing it every morning, three or four days in a row, will knock off multiple stages of the white flies rather than just one quick rinse and then thinking you're done with the job. They'll rebound if you do that. But if you get out there consistently day after day for three, four or five days in a row, you can really knock down the population and manage them that way. But when people watch me do this, they say, oh, you really mean a strong blast of water. Yeah, we're not giving them a shower. We're, we're sending them into a hurricane. <laughs> we're sending them off the plant several feet away where they will die in the waste land of the gravel on the floor of our nursery. So it's the kind of thing you really, you want to get a nozzle that'll allow you to really give a good, strong, vigorous rinse. And you take your hand and you hold the plant and very rigorously rinse them off the leaves. If you don't want to do that, if you want to go get a spray, I would start with neem neem oil spray, and that will smother a fair number of them and uh, repel the adults as they come in to lay eggs. And be careful not to do that when it's above, say, 85 or 90 degrees, but you'll find you get pretty good control with a neem spray. Next step up would be a light summer oil of some kind, again, with some caution about the daytime temperatures on that. Another problem that may develop as the season progresses is you're looking at those reddish tomatoes. Oh, they look beautiful. They're coming along. But all of a sudden, you look at the bottom of the tomato and it's turning brown and wrinkly. What's going on there? Blossom and rot. B-E-R. We abbreviate it B-E-R. It is uh, very distressing and frustrating when it happens. Uh, it, the bottom of the fruit, as you say, gets soft and mushy and is... Basically, the fruit is inedible at that point. First of all, some varieties are very susceptible to it. Roma is well known for being the, the canary in the coal mine as to a blossom end problem. Uh, blossom end rot, we now know, is not caused by a calcium deficiency in the soil. It's not even caused by a calcium deficiency in the plant. It appears to be closely correlated with uh, fluctuating temperatures, cold temperatures, and erratic or uneven irrigation, or particularly some combination of those three things. You can make it worse by adding large amounts of certain types of fertilizers like ammonia, but the strongest correlation of blossom end rot is when you get a, a rainy spell and you overwater the plants in, in May just as the fruit is expanding. That's the fruit that is going to have blossom end rot seven or eight weeks later. So deep, careful, thorough watering as infrequently as possible will generally prevent blossom end rot, except when the weather is wonky. The goal then is even soil moisture. Yeah, and that's true you know, for all your vegetables, but tomatoes in particular, most of the problems that we talk with people about early in the season have to do with how they're watering. They're watering too shallowly and not long enough. They're running a drip system. This is a very common answer when we ask, how are you watering? Oh, I run it three times a week for five minutes. That's a coffee cup of water. So a, a tomato plant wants a gallon or two when you water it. And as it grows, it may need three or four gallons of water. You don't have to do that very often, depending on your soil type, obviously. But uh, a deep soaking relatively infrequently is going to be much more effective than shallow waterings that are keeping the surface too wet and never getting any any depth to them. Tomato roots go deep if they can. And they'll mine water deeper and further out if they are allowed to grow 
to a greater extent. But a lot of people are really, really underwatering them when they do. Now, there is another product that one can buy at a nursery that supposedly will solve Blossom End Rot. It, too, is a spray. It's a calcium spray. And even though Blossom End Rot is due to a calcium imbalance, uh, it may not be due to lack of calcium. Besides, what good is a spray on a, to a, a, a skin of a fruit? Yeah, well, that's a good question. I think a lot of the research on blossom end rot ended up being kind of misdirected. They noticed the link with calcium, but uh, made some assumptions about the impact of calcium on the condition you're seeing. Uh, calcium sprays won't do any good. Calcium applied to the soil won't do any good. Putting a Tums tablet under the plant won't do any good. Someone's going to recommend that to you on Facebook, I guarantee it. Uh, it's not a deficiency of calcium in the plant. It may be an imbalance within the, you know, near the fruit. There's some question about whether that's even related. It just appears to be an internal metabolic physiological disorder related to erratic temperatures and erratic moisture. And here's the good news. You pick those first ones off, you throw them away. Typically, as the temperatures get more to our normal summer conditions here and you water more deeply, the problem goes away. So the next crop is usually fine. And worth pointing out, you can also get blossom end rot on peppers and squash and some of the other plants in your garden. It's the same issue. Just water more thoroughly when you do and more carefully. Don't keep the plants soggy, but don't let them get drought stressed either. Now, we we, we, we can't attribute uh, blossom end rot to total operator error, although probably 90% of the problems are. There are just some tomato varieties that are more susceptible to it. Yeah, and I've grown some. I'll pick them out of a catalog. They'll be giant fruited ones or whatever, and I'll grow them. And all of the first ones that said good blossom end rot, I just avoid that one uh, in the future. So if you do find a consistent problem with a particular variety, I haven't noticed any pattern to it. But if you do notice a consistent problem with a particular variety, there is about 500 tomato varieties out there to choose from. And I would just move on. Uh, it, it, there are some that appear to be more susceptible to that problem. I would bet that's probably regional, too. I wouldn't be surprised if there's greater or lesser susceptibility in different regions. Wherever you're listening, there are varieties that do very well in your area, and there are varieties that don't do so well in your area, mostly related to your climate. And so you want to find the ones that are locally recommended by master gardeners, successful old-timer down the street, or your local nursery there where they actually grow tomatoes and know what they're talking about, and uh, keep trying until you find the right, oh, 20 or 30 varieties for your backyard. Now there are some sun-related problems, especially oh, yeah. in warmer areas where your plants are getting pummeled by sun all day long. And yes, tomatoes are a full sun crop, yeah. but there is such a thing as too much sun, which can result in things like fruit cracking or cat facing or solar yellowing. Sun scald is a sunburn is the simplest name to apply. And it is directly on the fruit in the case of the sun scald. It's, it's the fruit that's exposed to the western sky when it's 105 degrees. And some varieties are more susceptible than others only because some of them have better leaf canopy than others. I've never had sunburn on an ace tomato because the plant has got a nice dense canopy. It's a consistent problem on celebrity for me when I've grown that one because the plant is a relatively unvigorous plant that produces a lot of fruit. So a whole lot of that fruit is exposed to the direct afternoon sun. Uh, so there are varietal differences once again. And once you've grown a number of tomatoes, you'll find some of them are just leafier, more vigorous, shade themselves better. Champion does a very good job of shading itself and produces a very large amount of large fruit. And I mentioned celebrity by comparison. It's a chronic problem on that particular variety for me. So you could, if you want to grow a particular variety that's susceptible to sunburn on the fruit, figure out a way to shade it a little bit 
bit from the hot afternoon sun, uh, maybe rig up a, a little structure to the west of the plant and put some 50% shade cloth that you buy from a local garden center. Um, another option might just be to put them where there's a little natural shade, not too much, or just plant varieties that are more dense and leafy. And then you'll notice that, again, as with blossom endorite, you'll notice varietal differences over time that will lead you away from some varieties and towards others as you slowly build this collection of your favorite varieties that does well in your particular region. And it probably would help, too, to keep your pruning shears in their holster because uh, the more leaf uh, cover that it has, uh, less chance there is of sun-related problems. I would say pruning tomatoes is almost never necessary. And I know that that causes some controversy when we say that, but uh, it has very little benefit. If you're taking foliage off and exposing fruit, you're definitely going to get that adverse effect of sunburn on the fruit itself. Um, it reduces yield overall when you prune tomatoes. The only reason I can think of that would be a possible benefit would be in areas where late blight is a real problem, pruning them to get more open habits so you get better air circulation, but that increases your risk of sunburn. So I would suggest that keeping pruning at an absolute minimum, unless there's some weird training technique you've adopted that absolutely requires it. Pruning is for people in Minnesota, where their season begins on Labor Day, on Memorial Day and ends on Labor Day. Uh, here we've got such a long season that uh, we can allow the fruit to set very late in the season. We don't have to prune the vines for size control, and we'll still get plenty of ripe fruit. There are some yellowing issues uh, with the leaves on with some diseases. In fact, if you buy a tomato plant, you may see letters next to the name of the tomato like V, F or N or yep. T or A for that matter. But uh, the V and the F are, are two uh, problems that can cause a plant to turn yellow. And that would be verticillium and fusarium. Yeah, those are two problems in our area where we have, uh, these are soil-borne diseases, so they may be in your area if your homes were built on old agricultural soil, or if you bring in soil, uh, inadvertently bringing in the disease with it. One of the reasons I've always concerned about people getting um, tomato plants from their fellow backyard gardeners who started the seeds themselves, a lot of home gardeners like to use dirt use uh, compost from their own yard as they as they grow them. Unfortunately, that can be a source of contamination into your yard. So it'd be best if all the gardeners out there who are sharing transplants use packaged soils rather than homemade garden soils. If you get them, it's a real problem. Verticillium and fusarium are very challenging to eliminate, um, impossible basically to eliminate. And even the rotation practices that we all recommend, that special three-year rotation of only nightshade plants in this area and then no nightshade plants in this area, nightshade family is what I'm referring to. Even that's only marginally effective. So your best bet, if you have a problem with verticillium, fusarium or nematodes is to look for that VFN on the label. New hybrids, modern hybrids that have verticillium, fusarium and nematode tolerance uh, built into them. Champion is a good example, but there's a lot of others out there. And uh, that's that's why you see that on the labels. And, and East Coast gardeners are now seeing more and more varieties with late blight resistance, which is a nice kind of new wrinkle in the breeding direction. And the letters T and A are, uh, refer to a, a tobacco mosaic virus and yep. alternaria. Yep. And uh, the, as far as tobacco mosaic virus, don't smoke around your plants. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> that one's easy. I've actually never seen a case of TM tobacco mosaic in my career. So I gather that's more of a greenhouse operation concern. But uh, those those resistances that are built into the hybrids are a distinct advantage. This is why when we're talking on your program early in the season about going and selecting your tomato varieties, we we both kind of push get at least a few hybrids in there. You know, they're, they're going to have this resistance 
bred into them. And I know people love heirloom tomatoes and all, but they don't have that resistance built into them. So diversifying the number of varieties and the types of varieties you're planting can be really important. And one more uh, problem that may affect your uh, tomatoes, where the lower leaves and stems look kind of bronze or oily brown color, the leaves dry up and drop, that could be russet mites. That's an interesting one. I've seen it several times, and it's really hard to diagnose from someone's description because they think it just looks like a watering problem. You know, the plant looks like it needs it, not wilting, but like it's sort of drying out from the ground up. I happened to have that problem very early on when I was a gardener here in the valley, so I got it identified. And it, it yes, it looks like it's browning slowly from the ground up the vine. The vine keeps growing with reasonable vigor, keeps flowering, keeps setting, but just sort of steadily declines as the season goes along. It can be a tough one. Oil sprays can be very helpful early in the season. If you've had it one year, you might wish to spray for it the next. The thing, though, is to get it properly diagnosed because it takes a 40-power hand lens to see those little mites. And uh, most nurseries and honestly, most master gardeners aren't going to recognize that problem. It's not something they encounter very often. So uh, take some pictures of the plant, uh, get real close with a, with a hand lens and look at the leaf. You might see the russet mite on there. If you have a problem one year, get rid of all the tomato foliage, all the debris at the end of the season. Don't compost it. Send it away. Send it off to the landfill and um, watch your plants carefully the next year or perhaps give them a preventive spray with a light oil as they're beginning to grow. Because it can be a frustrating problem when you get it. By the time you figure out what it is, it might be a little late to do anything about it. Is there any truth to the old adage, uh, avoid planting tomatoes near petunias and potatoes to avoid russet mites? Not that I know of. I think petunias look lovely with tomatoes. We've been doing some tomato troubleshooting with Don Shore, owner of Redwood Barn Nursery in Davis, California. Don, thanks for the tomato tips. All right. Always great to talk to you, Fred.